This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Debbie Millman, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. We're so excited to see you. You have been podcasting now for 17 years. Just about, yep. 17 years, while you're doing other things, and we're going to get to the other things too, but your new book, Why Design Matters, is 55 interviews pulled from the nearly 500 that you've done in those 17 years. Why make a book now? I think there was an opportunity to create almost a historical monograph of my work. What's interesting is that back in the day, when I was before I had any books at all, I was talking to my mentor, Steve Heller, about the idea of doing a book of interviews from Design Matters. And this, I would say, would have been in year three or four. And Steve Heller is a man who is the foremost design critic in the world. He's published about 200 books about design and culture and criticism. And he said, no, I don't think that's a good idea at all. (laughs) He said, people can get it for free already. There's no point. And so I took that to heart. And then I would say about three years ago, so that would be, you know, 13 years later, I was working on a book with Maria Popova, Wendy McNaughton, and Sarah Rich on one of the great, great women art directors of the 20th century, C.P. Pinellas, and ended up through that experience uh, meeting Charlotte Cheedy. And Charlotte became my agent and thought it was a wonderful idea. And I thought, well, I'm going to trust Charlotte. You know, it is all these years later. Maybe there is an opportunity. The show has evolved quite a bit since its inception. And she put it out. And lo and behold, I have a book. And it's a very cool book. It is 55 of the smartest interviews anyone could read. And I'm just going to run through a short list of some of the writers. There's so much talent in this book, but there's some of the writers in here that I really want to shout out. Elizabeth Alexander, Linda Barry, Alison Bechdel, Brene Brown, Alain de Botton. David Byrne has a book out. V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, obviously has had multiple books. Tim Ferriss, Stephen Heller, Chip Kidd, Anne Lamott, Carmen Maria Mikado, Amanda Palmer, Priya Parker, Esther Perel, Maria Popova, Chris Ware, And that's just some of the writers who show up in this book. How in the world did you find a way to pick 55 out of nearly 500? Well, that's pretty much what I did during COVID. (laughs) I knew that the first 100 or so interviews that I had first done back in the day on Voice America when the show started really as a live radio show were not good enough. There were only two or three that I thought could make the cut. Shepard Ferry, Milton Glaser, and Barbara Kruger. I wasn't able to reach Barbara Kruger, so I wasn't able to get her permission. And so the only two shows from the inception of the show, 2005 to 2009, are those two, Shepard and Milton. Of the next 300 plus, I went through and thought, okay, what is the criteria that I want to have for the interviews that are included? First and foremost, they had to be compelling conversations. (laughs) And not all my interviews are compelling conversations. I'd like to think they are, but some are indeed better than others. So I went through and made the cut just thinking, what are the shows that I feel stand the test of time from my standards? And I came up with about 200 that I wanted to consider. And then I had them all transcribed. And then I read them all. Then I started to make the cut. 
And the biggest takeaway that I wanted to have people experience reading each interview was a mutuality. So no matter who it was, whether it's Seth Godin or Tim Ferriss or Amina Tussaud or any of the people that I, I spoke to, I wanted there to be some way of people experiencing some sort of basic human experience that felt timeless, that anybody could relate. And that made it a lot more difficult because a lot of the interviews that I conduct are also the centerpiece of the interview might be a new book or a piece of music or a play or a film. And so I didn't want to make it so that there was a moment in time that was so fixed that it was, it felt dusty. And, and that really eliminated quite a few. And then finally, I needed to be able to edit it in a way that allowed me to condense it to a point where it wasn't taking so much muscle out of the interview, but still allowed it to feel like a complete conversation with a pretty significant edit. Because right now the book is 150,000 words, which is twice as, as long as it was originally intended. The later interviews, I would say any of my interviews from 2015 to now are about 10,000 words each. So there was no way that HarperCollins was going to let me publish a book of seven complete interviews, <laughs> nor did I want to. And so I had to be able to cut them down to about no more than between three and 4,000 words. And if I couldn't, if the conversation was so dense that cutting out so much of it would leave it sort of bereft of any meaning, I couldn't include it. And so there were some wonderful, wonderful conversations that I just couldn't include because they really do have a, a span that didn't really allow for keeping the integrity of the interview without keeping it as is. Those are just some of the things. Then there was the, can I get their permission? Can I get a beautiful photograph? And there were some that I really had a hard time. It was a bear because originally I was planning on doing a photo shoot and going around the country and photographing whoever I chose in the various cities because there were pockets, really. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I couldn't do that. So I had a photo edit the entire book and negotiate with photographers from all over the world. But I'm kind of glad I had that opportunity because, first of all, I think having photographs from Annie Leibovitz and Inez and Vindu and some of the greatest photographers in the world has created a book that feels like it has a bit more heft. And I was also able to, because of the quality of photographers, have a, a thread that runs, I think, through all. And the criteria for me was that I had to see the soul of the person in their eyes. Which definitely has happened in all of these photographs. But let's talk about the structure of the book for a second. You break it out into sections. So you had to then take these 55 interviews and pull quotes from other interviews. Yes. We're talking about design. We're talking about designing a system of presenting information in this beautiful, gorgeous book. But there are a lot of folks in the world who think of design simply as an object, right? It's the coffee mug in your kitchen. It's your dinner setting. It's your silverware. It's the clothing you're wearing or the furniture you sit on. But design actually is much bigger than that. And that's something you've been tackling since the early days of the show, and even when you were focused on designers talking about design, you talked about pivoting in earlier interviews. 
where you said, I've gone from designers talking about design to now talking about how creatives design their lives. That doesn't seem like a big move to me, but I think I don't necessarily limit the way I think about design. Well, thank you for that, (laughs) because there are a lot of people that every now and then I'll get an email from a listener that'll say, I thought this show was called Design Matters. When was the last time you interviewed a designer? And in my mind now, I truly believe that design is intention. And any decision that you make about how you want to live your life is design. And humans have been designing the symbols that we all use (laughs) to communicate since our earliest modern experiences. And I'm going all the way back to the caves of Lascaux. This is something that we've been doing for archaeologists just found handprints of children from 260,000 years ago. We really thought that our first markings were 18,000 years ago. And now that's looking like that's just ridiculously short-sighted. We were recording our experiences and our realities on the cave walls. I don't think it's any coincidence that we went from recording our experiences on cave walls to recording our experiences on the walls of Facebook. And we're using symbols, whether they be religious symbols, whether they be branded symbols, logos, to telegraph our affiliations and our beliefs. We've been doing that since the beginning of time, essentially, as, as modern humans. So I don't see really any difference in constructing an experience in a house of worship versus constructing an experience in the house of Apple. They're identical. They're absolutely identical. And all of that is by design, which is by intention, which is in many ways, and I don't say this in a pejorative way, manufactured. We have created these marks, these symbols to telegraph our experience. We manufacture our own ideas about what that means. We project it into the symbol. And once you have consensus of any kind, you agree that it means what it means. And it's the story that we connect to, though. Absolutely. It's always a story. Because if you look at something just as simple as the Nike swoosh, the Nike swoosh, if you really look at its symbol. I mean, take a look at the Newport Cigarettes pack and it's the Nike swoosh upside down. Capital One has nearly the identical logo. And then something as heinous as the swastika. Hitler appropriated the swastika. And it was a religious symbol, a mystical symbol. It comes from the Sanskrit word swastika, which means good fortune and luck. In the 1920s, Coca-Cola used the swastika as a bottle opener. It was on poker chips because it was supposed to bring good luck. It was on cigar wrappers. It was on road signs. And it wasn't until Hitler appropriated that mark that it became essentially what Steve Heller calls a mark beyond redemption. The Jain tribe used it in a hand of God. So we create symbols. We project meaning into those symbols. And when there is enough agreement or consensus, we agree what those symbols mean. And as of today, that symbol means something that represents the most evil time in our history as humans. But before that, it was good luck and good fortune and well-being. It feels like right now, though, where we're living in a moment where social media is driving so much of the conversation and so much of our connection with each other and with the brands that we bring into our lives and with the businesses that we engage with. 
It seems like we're losing the thread, though, between story and image. And this, I think, is one of the most damaging things about social media. You know, if we look back to the first experiences that we had on the iPhone, prior to using the iPhone to connect, we had our computers, but they really weren't portable enough to allow us to connect through them when we weren't tethered to them with a power cord. And if you look back at 2005, 2006, 2007, Right before Facebook, when there was MySpace, you know, I remember in 2005 or six, my my then high school aged goddaughter saying to me, because I'm the supposed brand expert here, why is MySpace so popular? And at the time, I didn't know. And I was sort of shameful. I'm supposed to be this brand expert. And I don't know why the most popular brand on the planet is as successful as it is. In 2006, it surpassed Google in the number of page views. And what I discovered in my research in trying to answer her was it wasn't so much that we were compelled to MySpace per se, and subsequently we can see that with the advent of every new social network. We're really connecting with others through that space. In 2003, 4, and 5, after the iPod first came out, people don't remember this, but there was a huge cultural conversation about how we were living in what was then called the iPod isolation nation. And the New York Times was talking about how the iPod was bringing about social anomie. We were living in a, in a place where we were secluded in our own bubbles and disconnected from each other through that experience into the iPod, where we can control all of our entertainment. Well, what happens when we're able to take that and communicate through that device, that's when we become consumed with not really the device itself. I think that's what most people think. It's really the feeling we get through the device, being able to be connected with others. But then all of our other nascent, more primitive instincts emerge, and suddenly we want to be seen in a certain way. And it's really no different from any other human experience. We want to be considered superior. We want to be considered attractive. We want to be considered successful. And so we project who we want to be into those experiences in an effort to project the kind of persona we want others to believe we are, even if we don't believe it ourselves. So it's really no different than my experience in seventh grade in the 70s, wanting to wear a pair of Levi's to appear cooler. I was obsessed And my mother, we didn't have a lot of money. My mother was a seamstress. She's like, I could just sew a little red tag on the back of your dungarees. I'm like, mom, that would be worse than not having a pair and having a fake pair. She didn't understand that. But for me, it was, that would have been shameful. We live so publicly now in ways that we haven't previously. I know things about ostensible strangers. Oh, right. That I may not know that about people I consider good friends and vice versa. I'm notorious for not sharing lots of details of my life on social and I like it that way. Do I want to participate in social? Of course. Is it fun to a certain extent? Yes, absolutely. It turns out I like Instagram. Yeah. That was never my plan. But at the same time, you managed to convince people to talk about things in ways that are very gentle and very smart and very compelling But let's talk about your process for a second. How in the world 
do you prepare for something that becomes really intimate and really telling and you just convince people to go and they (laughs) trust you, which is really important? I don't know if I could codify it, but first and foremost, I only interview people I am really interested in. There has to be a intense curiosity. I am, I think, just by who I am as a person, very curious about, maybe uh, curious isn't even the word. I'm endlessly fascinated by how people become who they are. It's taken me a long time to discover who I am. And I'm talking about decades and decades, not just like a couple of years. <laughs> and, and because I've been always so tentative about being who I am, I just am so interested in how people construct their lives. Where do they find their courage? Where do they find their stamina? How do they overcome heartbreak? How long does the feeling of being successful last for them? How do they navigate the choices that just humans have? And because it's such a genuine curiosity and not a gotcha curiosity, I think people have come to understand that my interviews really respect the journeys that their lives have been as opposed to sort of TMZ gossip. Not that there's anything wrong with TMZ gossip. It's usually the first place I go when some big celebrity news breaks. But that's not the kind of show that I have. But what has interviewing taught you? Interviewing has taught me how fragile, (laughs) how truly fragile everything in life is. And how, I mean, it's taught me so many things. First, it's taught me how much struggle people really have. It's taught me how despite that struggle, people still yearn for more, for better, for love, for acceptance. It's taught me how, how fast we metabolize everything. Success, failure, the one thing I think we don't metabolize is regret, and that's because there's no closure to regret. So there's nothing you can get over because it's not finished. You're still in the process of regret and, and how insidious regret is. I think regret is actually one of the most harmful of human experiences. I've learned how generous people are because so many people have said yes to being interviewed by me. <laughs> and I've learned how soft people really are at the center. How do you describe yourself these days? We know work you... in progress. <laughs> okay, work in progress is fair. Work in progress is totally fair. But you're an educator. You're a podcaster. You're a writer. You are so many different pieces of the same person. But how do you describe yourself beyond work in progress? Well, if somebody says, who are you or what do you do? I say, I'm Debbie Millman. I'm an author and educator, a designer, and host of the podcast Design Matters. And then I sort of let it go with that. Most people don't know what a designer means. And so they're always like, huh, what, clothes? Fashion? Interiors? (laughs) I'm like, no, no, no. You've mentioned in earlier interviews, though, that you never really planned on being a designer. So how did we get here? But also, what does it mean to you to be a designer? I came to design quite by accident. I didn't even know what design was. 
I grew up with a mom who was very artistic. So I knew about fine art and I knew about, I did know about fashion because she was a seamstress, but I had no intention of becoming a designer. I was an English major with a minor in Russian literature. And I think I've told you this before. I often joke about the fact that I have a college degree in reading, which I'm actually kind of proud of now because I've read the classics (laughs) and I've read all the Russian classics. But when I was a senior in college, I became the editor of the arts and features section of my college newspaper. And the responsibilities of the editor also included what was then referred to as putting the paper together, which meant designing it. And so I had a crash course in design and fell head over heels in love with image making and with playing with type and photography. I became quite good in the old school stat room that we had and really learned a skill on the job that year. It was my only marketable skill coming out of college and got a job doing layout and paste up for $6 an hour at a magazine called Cable View, which was all the rage back then because the early 80s was the sort of real big mainstream success of cable. And so here was a magazine all about cable television called Cable View. And I was sort of the traffic girl between the editorial department and the art department because I did have some rudimentary skills in both. And from there, started more seriously working in design over the first decade of my career, although it was quite gruesome and I had quite a lot of failure in that first decade. It wasn't really until my early 30s that I found branding quite by accident. I wasn't a particularly good designer became a much better art director because I knew what I wanted but couldn't always make that happen with my own hands. And uh, went into branding really as a salesperson at a company called Sterling Brands in 1995. And that's really when I found my commercial and professional success. From 1995 to 2016, I was there and I helped build this agency from a very small niche consultancy to one of the biggest in the world and and did that for 20 years and started Design Matters at Sterling Brands. Tropicana was mm-hmm. one of your accounts. Burger King, <laughs> yeah. Gillette, Star Wars you did. Yeah, we did the merchandising for episode two, Attack of the Clones, which was one of the greatest experiences of my life because we had our kickoff meeting at Skywalker Ranch. I remember we were so excited about that first phase of design that we did We were high-fiving each other in the parking lot only to come to the meeting and find out that the clients at both Lucas Licensing and Hasbro, which were manufacturing all of the action figures, hated everything we did. (laughs) And so I basically had to stop the meeting and say, we'll be back next week with more. (laughs) And then finally we were able to get it. but, But it was a remarkable experience and one that I will never, ever forget. What has design taught you about interviewing? It's a great question, and no one has ever asked me that question. I think it's taught me about how to construct the arc of a narrative. My interviews are very scripted in many ways because I do have all of my questions prepared and written out in advance. And it's taught me to be able to pivot really quickly and follow my guest wherever they may go with follow-up questions 
based on whatever answer they provide, because I don't know what they're going to answer. But I've said before that a, a really good interview is like a game of billiards, where the goal in playing pool is not to volley back and forth with your opponent. It's to try to keep getting as many of the billiard balls into the pockets without relinquishing your turn to your opponent. And so for a good game of pool, you want to leave all of the billiard balls on the table to be able to continue to get more pockets. And so for me, it's wherever my guest takes that billiard ball, I want to be able to follow with a whole set of questions that are prepared based on what I know about them to make the conversation interesting, not only for the guest who hasn't necessarily answered the same questions 45 times before, but for my listeners who, are, who might be fans and have listened to other interviews and don't want to hear the same information again and again and again. Because most people that I interview have been interviewed maybe hundreds of times. And so how do I create a narrative arc that allows for both surprise from my guest and a compelling, interesting, kind of never heard before interview for my listeners? I probably use a third of my research for any given show. I would say that's about right. I go until I stop, and it's always fun, but you never know when you're going to find that one line. I know. Isn't that the best? It's like, you know that I know that you know that I know how much went into this, and you both sort of revel in the moment of awareness. It's fun, too, to be able to walk into a room and just start asking questions and seeing where it goes. To be able to say, I don't have an answer, and I'm just going to go to the source. So here you are with this 150,000-word book. It is beautiful, this book. Thank you. Every bit of this book is gorgeous. But what did it teach you shifting from the auditory to the visual? Well, designing anything for myself became really challenging because I wasn't designing it by myself. I had a partner in this. That was Alex Kalman. He came to the project very late. My first designer resigned. We were not able to get a cover that HarperCollins approved, liked. And my designer, a very famous designer who was not used to that much client involvement, gave up, I think, after the 90th cover. <laughs> And I don't blame him. I don't blame him at all. And he's still a good friend. And I respect what he did. Alex came in very late to the game and knew that it was going to be a collaborative process, that I had a very picky publisher that was very specific about what they wanted for this cover. And then the interior, I was kind of relentless in pushing the guests that were included in this book to give me photography that I felt represented who they were. Oliver Jeffers at the end ended up having to do a whole new shoot for me, which he didn't have to do, but I was unwilling to accept anything that was subpar, especially from Oliver Jeffers, who's so visual. I went so deep into Google that I actually thought I was going back to the beginning of time to try to find the picture that I wanted, the photograph of, that I wanted of Elizabeth Alexander because I wanted something soft. 
I didn't want a professional sort of photo that would be on her bio page at the Mellon Foundation. I wanted something that showed her soul. And so there were a few photos at the very end that I actually wasn't sure if those interviews were going to make it into the book because I didn't want the interview to be better than the photo. I felt that I owed it to my guests to present these people in a way that I envisioned they deserved. And some people got annoyed with me in the process, (laughs) but I stand by my decisions. So it was hard. You know, I've done enough work in both the visual and the verbal to know that any combination of the two have to be equally excellent. You can't have a visual supporting an editorial that is not representative of the piece in all of its glory. And you also can't have the opposite. You can't have something visual that's better because either one will dilute the other. But together, if they're equally excellent, really just glorify what you're trying to do in the right way. And anything less was very hard for me to accept. And so I think I drove people a little bit nuts in that because I had collaborators. It wasn't only on myself. But it sounds to me like you were always focused on the story. I mean, the combination of every image right, and the words that for me in this book, they can't actually be separated. Right. But everything was very considered. You know, there mm-hmm. are little scribbles. There's a scribble on the cover. And for me, that scribble represents the circuitous nature of a conversation, where it could go, how it can go anywhere. It's very intentionally infinite in that there's no beginning or end to the scribble. That to me was very important. Also sort of symbolizing the circuitous nature of information and life and spirit and so forth. But then there are little scribbles throughout the book and those do have a beginning and an end and they're used at the very end of each interview to signify that it's ended. Well, I didn't want one that we could manipulate 68 different ways because they also come at the end of the essays and whatnot. I had to do 68 (laughs) scribbles. They were all unique. So I was a little bit obsessive and I am a little bit OCD in that way. But again, I think I'm proud of every element. I didn't want regret. I didn't want to look at this book and think, I wish I had done that. I wish I had paid a little bit more to get a better photograph. I wish that I had done 68 scribbles because that one kind of looks too much like that one people are going to see. I just wanted it to be the best that I could possibly make it. Books matter. Books matter. Holding a book in your hands is a wonderful moment. Yeah. And sometimes you get great content and sometimes you think, okay, I'm done now. Right. I did want it to be kind of, you know, as we're talking, I'm coming up with this thought for the first time, but I think I think I wanted to make it a sort of seductive experience. You know, the paper is very soft and it has a little bit of heft to it. It's curvy. You know, I think I wanted it to have that sort of voluptuousness of life. But there's also unexpected joy in the pages. It isn't just interview after interview. There are quotes that just pop in. I've read it multiple times now. And it's it's never the same experience, which I really appreciate. Yeah, we were very intentional about not doing the same typography for every interview. We didn't want it to be monotonous. We wanted there to be moments of surprise. When you get to Amy Sherald's page, suddenly there's color. When you get to Maria Popova's page, it's yellow. You know, there were very intentional things that we felt would surprise and delight people as they were going through it, given it was so dense. It is a very dense book. Who are you as a reader? Uh, Most of my reading now is in service to my guests. So I've just spent the last 
two weeks reading all of Amy Koppelman's books, watching her movie I Smile Back with Sarah Silverman, which is magnificent, seeing a cut of her new movie that's coming, A Mouthful of Air. Her books are very raw. And so I've actually been walking around thinking a lot about what her protagonists go through, the self-destructiveness, the trigger alert, the suicides, the panic, the pathos. So I spend a lot of time reading and living in my guests' lives for the weeks prior to interviewing them. Sometimes that is exciting. You know, when I was interviewing Thomas Kell, I was reading and watching and just engorging with everything Hamilton that I could. That was phenomenal, you know, and so joyful and listening to the soundtrack and singing Helpless over and over and over and over again. With Amy, it was a bit more sober. And I'm interviewing her tomorrow and I'm just immersed in the worlds that her protagonists embody and what it means to have that much pain. What do you want readers to know about why design matters as a book? I think design matters as much as life matters because we make choices every day about how we live our lives. And that's done either consciously or subconsciously with intention. And I think the common denominator that almost everyone shares, if not everyone, is the desire to continue to do more, to be more, to live more, to love more, despite the obstacles that get in our way on our journeys of doing these things. And I think that the book leaves you with a sense of hope. And that's what I would like to allow people to feel, whether they're listening to the show or reading anything or experiencing anything that I make, that there's always an opportunity to create what you want. What's next, though, for you? Well, I have a very big season of Design Matters. Just confirmed that I'll be interviewing the Indigo Girls, which sort of blows my mind. And I'm hoping that we can do a sing-along, with me included, even though I have a terrible voice, but just the idea, because I've been singing along to them my whole life. So that's super exciting. <laughs> I think I'm going to actually start working on, a, on another book, an illustrated book about why we buy things. Yes, please. Please, please, please. <laughs> I would very much like that book. <laughs> please. Trying to make sense of our consumerist culture and what it means to pick one thing versus another. And how do you explain that? But in a very visual way. The hamster in my head is on the wheel and racing because that is such a great idea. That is <laughs> such a great idea. I'm so excited about that. Debbie Millman, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. This was a real treat for us. And the new book is Why Design Matters. It's out now. And now it's time for your TBR top off here on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Thanks again for joining us this week. We are excited about Why Design Matters by Debbie Millman. And uh, my name is James Harper. I'm here at the Northville store in Michigan. Happy to be with you as always. And I'm here with Margie. Hi, Margie. Hi, James. Always great. Always a good time. Uh, we got three books to recommend to you this week uh, based on this interview with Debbie Millman that you just heard. And we have a special guest this week. AJ Hi. is here. AJ, welcome. Where are you from? And uh, tell us what store you work at. Hi there. This is AJ from the Flint, Michigan store. Thank you for having me. Yay. Great to have you here, AJ. 
And we're excited uh, to hear your recommendation today. So start us off, Margie, what do you got? Yeah, I get to go first. So uh, my book is called Steal Like an Artist, 10 Things Nobody Told You About Being Creative. And that's by Austin Kleon. This book originated from a speech the author did. It was for a group of college students and he wanted to give them a set of principles. So he decided on 10, 10 is always a good number. So it's 10 principles that he wished someone had told him when he started out as an artist. And this book presents them again, in order to encourage his readers to actually let themselves be creative. My favorite, one of these principles is nothing is original. So it's okay to remix. It's okay to reimagine. You need to do as much as you can to figure out what your artistic path is going to be. And of course, that isn't to say you are going to copy people, but to rather recognize what's influencing you and why, and to also educate yourself on the work of others. So my other favorite, because I have to have more than one, is to forget the cliche about going with what you know. Don't limit yourself to your own experiences, but instead reach for what you'd like to experience. There's pragmatic advice about staying smart and staying out of debt. And a really interesting one, which is to risk being boring in your everyday world, which I thought was great. So to instead focus as much energy as possible on creating the space to be wild and daring in your imagination and to not worry about how boring you are in real life, which to me is just, you know, (laughs) that really, really speaks to me. (laughs) This book is an excellent reminder that there isn't one way or even a best way to be an artist. We all have it in us. And the most important aspect of artistic endeavor is to be yourself. And that is Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. I love that. I read that book a few years ago and it is so good. And it actually is a great segue into my title this week, I picked David Byrne, who wrote a book called How Music Works. Of course, David Byrne, famous for his work with The Talking Heads and Brian Eno and et cetera, et cetera. And he's actually written several books about creativity. And uh, he's a big bicycler. He wrote a book about riding, riding bicycles called The Bicycle Diaries. But this one is called How Music Works. And I'm a musician. I've been a musician basically my whole life. And this book is like a little... David Byrne encyclopedia about what music is, how it works, how to be a musician, how to be in a band, how to put yourself out there. What does a music scene look like? Where should you live? How do you get signed? How do you get a contract? How do you put your music out? So it's a little it's a little book that maybe you don't need to sit down and read in one reading, but it's almost like having a reference manual from somebody who's seen it mm-hmm. and done it all. And David Byrne has really thought deeply about music and its purpose in our lives, the emotions that it draws on, what notes and key changes and certain chords, the feelings that they strike. He does a deep dive on all of this throughout the book. So if you're a musician and you're kind of in the weeds, it's a great thing to to pull off the shelf and, and it helps you to kind of reset a little bit, but also gives you some very practical. And I think Margie used the word pragmatic, very pragmatic advice about being a musician. So I definitely recommend this one on everybody's shelf who is a songwriter, singer, musician. It is How Music Works by David Byrne. And AJ, you're up next. What do you got for us? All right. Well, thank you again for having me. I'm here to recommend a title featured on Millman's podcast back in 2019, Big Magic Mm -hmm. by Elizabeth Gilbert. 
though probably more well known for her book, Eat, Pray, Love, this title shouldn't be missed. It's written for active creators, but is a title, great title for anyone. Creativity is not just for works worthy of Pulitzer or Guggenheim recognition, but it's an important part of everyday life. Big Magic is one of the most honest and, well, straightforward books about the creative process I've ever read. Gilbert writes in a conversational tone, inviting you into her bright, inspiring world. Gilbert's philosophies of living beyond fear and and embracing what she calls creative mysticism are the necessary steps to opening yourself up to creative inspiration. She describes a way to live and enjoy a life of creativity. She doesn't try to sugarcoat the amount of work involved in creating something or pretend that you'll be able to do it fearlessly, but she insists that you give yourself permission to enjoy the ride. The end result is, well, the end result. Remember the passion, the experience, and the act of creation is the true reward. Again, I can't recommend this title enough. Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Awesome. AJ, thanks for joining us today. I know you were particularly excited about why design matters, being a big fan of Debbie Milliman, right? Correct. I followed her podcast for the last like two, three years now. Also, AJ is an artist. I'm just going to throw that out there. Sorry, AJ. Don't want to throw you under the bus, but he does amazing multimedia work. So even better. Oh, maybe we should team up. You can do my album artwork next time I record. (laughs) There we go. Cool. Well, that's it for your TBR top off this week. Thanks for listening to Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. My name is James. You can follow me on Instagram at jamesreadingbooks. And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Book Brain. I'm AJ. Follow my store at BNFlintMI. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will talk to you next time. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.